0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 45. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you can find one around you. There are some in the pew backs in front of you, maybe on the, the pew, at the end of the pew, beside you. Um, find one. Stand up and find one if you don't have one. And if you don't have one, you feel, feel free to take that with you. Um, we'd love for you to have a Bible. You get up top? You guys need one? I'm going to be checking. All right, good. Well, at the outset, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to s- tell you a sentence that I think summarizes this, this passage. And so if you're taking notes, you can write down this sentence and then go back and, and hopefully it'll help you remember the, the point. But, but here's, here's a sentence. Jesus lives a life of service that leads to suffering and leaves an example. So Jesus lives a life of service, which leads to suffering and leaves an example. So I think I have it on the next slide. I think I have the, um, the sentence. But Jesus lives a life of service that leads to suffering and leaves, leaves an example. And so what we're going to come across in our passage this morning is that Jesus, he's preparing his disciples. We're we're reaching the end. In fact, once we get to chapter 11, we're going to be in Jerusalem, and all that's left to happen in Mark's gospel is is the passion, the suffering. So it may not seem like it, but we're getting near the end of Mark's gospel. And, And so what Jesus is doing is he's preparing his disciples for what's to come when they get to Jerusalem, his suffering. And after he suffers, he's going to be gone. And, and these disciples are going to be left behind him to, to continue the work. So he's preparing them for what they ought to expect their lives to look like and how, how a disciple ought to live. Namely, we'll see, a servant of all. We'll see that. And so as we look at this passage, we ought to set our expectations accordingly. And the, and the two things that, that, that I think are going to be seen, first is that Jesus' greatest act of service that the culmination of his suffering, the, his death on the cross. This is the greatest act of service. This sets the paradigm for both authority and leadership within the kingdom. Okay, so we're going to look a lot. Of, we're going to look a lot at authority and how authority is exercised within the kingdom, and and authority is to be is to be seen in light of Jesus' greatest act of service. And so we're going to see authority and service go hand in hand, and then we're going to see that service. This is what we'll close with. Ought to be the mark of every Christian life service following the example of Christ and so as as followers of Christ we'll see that that this authority structure is totally backwards we live in a world where where we think of authority where we we view authority in one way and and Jesus comes along and and totally flips it on its head he's going to show that authority within the kingdom is is opposite of what we expect It's exercised through service, through laying down of rights, by by giving up for the good of others. And so we're going to see the way of the master this morning. So so look at the passage, we'll we'll begin in verse 32 of Mark 10. So Mark 10, beginning in verse 32, and I'm going to read, you can follow along. I'll go through verse 45. So Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid... And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and and they will condemn him to death, and and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, and and they will mock him, and they'll spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Verse 35, "And, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or baptize with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. That's for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, "And, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And and their great ones, they exercise authority or dominion over them. But it shall not be so among you. But instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's look at our passage. I've broken it down into into three sections. So we'll see in verses 32 through 34, we'll see a prediction of suffering. And then second section there, verses 35 through 40, the the request for power. We'll see James and John in this request, and we'll look at that. And then finally, I'd say the, the most important passage, the most important verse is a pattern to follow. So Jesus encompasses his teaching there in those verses, gives a pattern to follow. So let's first look at verses 32 through 34. So we see in these verses, as we come and we read them, as you're listening, you would be excused if you thought, I've heard this before, I think. It sounds familiar. In Mark's gospel, this, these verses 32 through 34, are, are the third passion prediction So, do you know the passion? Maybe you saw the movie, The Passion of Christ. Passion is just the word that refers to the sufferings of Jesus. Okay, so these are called his passion predictions. This is the third one that we've gotten to in Mark's gospel. And this this is gonna be the final one, the final passion prediction. And in these verses, Jesus plainly said, This is what's gonna happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's gonna happen. If you remember back, you can, if you're taking notes, you can write these down in in chapter 8. Verse 31 and following, there's this, that scene where Peter makes the good confession here the Christ. And then Jesus says, immediately following, that he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed. And then Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Okay, so, so that's Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen. And then in chapter 9, verses 30 and following, he tells them again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and killed. And right there in verse 30, it must be 32 or 33... Mark records that the disciples just didn't understand. They didn't get it. But those are the first two clear predictions of the suffering. So this is the final one. And this one, we kind of reach the climax. This is the most detailed of all of the passion predictions. It's as if Mark, and and, and as Jesus is is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, he's giving more and more a clear picture of what it's going to look like when they finally get to Jerusalem. And Mark's Mark's gospel, as I mentioned, is reaching its climax. We're almost to Jerusalem. and says, one last time, Jesus makes plain what's about to happen. So, then in verse 32, they're on, they're on the road. They're, they're going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And do you see there, in verse 32? And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So, you get the scene that there's the leader. He's leading the crew, he's, he's walking to Jerusalem. And then. Then a little farther behind, there's the disciples, the group of the 12, and Mark records that they're amazed, or maybe your, your translation says astonished. Then a little further back, maybe probably a little closer, there, there's others who followed. We don't know how big this group is, but it's probably bigger than the 12, and, and Mark says that they were afraid. And so as I'm reading that, right off the bat, I'm wondering, well, why are the disciples amazed? What, what is it that's going on that, that makes them amazed or astonished? What is it about this scene, about this situation that that generates amazement, and and why are are the others afraid? You see, and why is there a difference between the two? Why are the disciples experiencing one thing and and the, the other follows another thing? Well, I don't want to make too much of this because, honestly, we can't know for sure. We can't know. Mark doesn't say why, but I think one thing that we should note is that both groups are safely following Right? they 're they're, they're continuing on, so what their their fear and their amazement it 's not, it's not preventing them from following Christ they 're safe so long as they 're following Christ. so they 're following him. Well why are the disciples amazed? I think, I think the reason some people say it's because of what 's going to happen in Jerusalem, some people say um, other things. Um, I think their amazement primarily has to do with, with Jesus himself. I, th- I think their amazement is is they see Jesus. I think it 's his person. That amazes them. I, I think that at this point, that at this point in his life, at this point in, the, in Mark's gospel, that, that Jesus has, has changed in the sense that his sights are set on Jerusalem. He's going. I mean, my, uh, Luke's gospel records it more, more clearly in, in Luke 8.51, maybe you could check that. But, but Luke says that he set his face to Jerusalem. And so, so there's this man on a mission that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's, he's driven. He's motivated. And so I think the disciples see that, and they're amazed at this man and his dedication, his resolve. And I think it's Jesus also himself that's the cause of the fear of the others. Those who, those who don't know him as well, they're afraid. Well, what's going on with him? Where's he going? Maybe they, maybe they know something about the, the people in Jerusalem who, who can't stand him. Maybe they're afraid of what's going to happen there. But, but, but either way, Jesus is leading, and people are following, amazed and afraid. And then in verse 33, at some point on their journey, Jesus takes his 12 aside. So here's this private teaching. He pulls them aside, and he's going to teach them what awaits. Tells them again this third time what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Verse 33, he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Okay, this is, this is the, the most exhaustive account of what's going to happen in these in these three predictions. It's the most detailed. And the only thing that the main difference here, other than these details that are added, is, is the mention of the Gentiles. Do you see that? The Gentiles are mentioned they haven't been mentioned up but before it was the 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 elders and the priests chief priests in chapter eight and chapter nine it was just this this vague he'll be handed over to men but here in chapter ten Jesus says specifically he's going to be delivered into the hands of Gentiles to be killed now I simply want to point that out because that had to happen it had to happen since it was a d- divine uh divinely foreordained, but also because the Jewish leaders, these scribes and these chief priests, they had, they had power, they had authority, but, but they could not kill anyone. They couldn't do it. They could issue a death sentence, but they had to hand the person over to the Romans in order to, to execute, to carry out the death sentence. So Jesus here is saying, do you see the, 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 how the word is? He's going to be condemned to death and then delivered over the Gentiles. Right? It's pretty specific about how this is going to play out. So, Jesus is going to be handed over, condemned to death by the Jews, then handed over to the Romans to be killed, to finish the job. So, Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen. And notice verse 34. It wasn't only the death that was going to be humiliating for Jesus. Do you see verse 34? He's going to be mocked, he's going to be spit on, flogged. Have you ever been spit on? Other than maybe by, by an infant, right? That, that doesn't count. Right, Spit on. An, an adult literally walking up and spitting on you for the purpose of, of spitting on you. That's humiliating, especially if you don't, can't do anything in response. This, this man, Jesus is going to be, going to be spit on, He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. Now it's easy. He's going to be flogged, beaten, spit on. And it's easy for us to, to read that and move on. Right, but, but just pause, just stop and wrap your mind around what Jesus is saying, that the Son of Man, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, was going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. That's shocking. And I would add, even more shocking is the fact that this, this isn't going to be the result of some plan gone awry. It's not like, oh, oh things are going wrong, now he's getting spit on. That's not the case. Rather, at the end of the day, it's God. It's the Father who delivers Jesus into the hands of these evil men. It's it's His doing. It was the Father's will to crush the Son. And that is shocking. That's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus is is saying. This is going to happen. And after He makes this prediction, He's he's approached approached by two of his, His closest disciples. Look there, transitioning in. The verses 35 and 40, this, this request for power. After this prediction, James and John come up to him. Now, now let me just remind you, let me just set the stage. Because, because what we see here, when they come up in what follows in verse 35, all the way through the, the rest of our passage, we see this pattern continued. So when, in the previous two times and in this time, when Jesus makes this prediction of his suffering, okay, part of it is simply for Jesus to tell them what's going to happen, but that's not all of it. That's part of it, that's not all of it. In every single case, after he makes this prediction, it's followed by a misunderstanding on the disciples' part. They miss the point. They don't get it. So he makes this prediction, then there's, there's hard, hard-headedness by the disciples. And so Jesus always follows up with teaching about discipleship, about what it means to be his disciple, to follow him in order to clarify what they should expect these disciples, they had expectations of what awaited them. Okay, yeah, we know his life's going to end. We, we, Maybe we don't understand all the specifics. He's going to die. But they had expectations of what awaited them as followers of Jesus. And these expectations were wrong. And so Jesus is, is patiently correcting them. And so he's teaching to correct their wrong expectations. He's shaping them. He's clarifying what it means. And, and as we've seen, the, the, the theme that's hit over and over, that's going to be hit again here today, is that the life of a follower of Jesus, the life of a disciple, is about self-denial and service. It's not about power and glory. That's not the point. It's about self-denial and service. In, eight, in chapter 8, when he mentioned it, there was a teaching on, if anyone f- would follow me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. Then he gave that, that equation, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. But if you lose it, then you'll save it. Right, so that was his teaching. That's how he clarified discipleship there. And then in, in chapter 9, how he clarified, right after he made his prediction, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And that's when he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The same, same wording used here. But in both of the previous predictions, he clarifies with, with what it means to follow him. And so here is the same. And so in these verses, verses 35 through 40, we see James and John, they misunderstand what awaits them. So, so notice, they, they approach him, and we see their misunderstanding there in verse 35. They approach him, they come up to him, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now let me stop here and give you your first application. Husband, wife, parent, whenever someone, child, or, or anyone else asks you for a favor, always get the specifics, right? Do you see? They come, hey, Master, do whatever we ask of you, right? They, they just want this carte blanche freedom. We, okay, go ahead, get fire away, I'll do whatever you ask, guys right, that Jesus knows better. Look at verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> he, he needs the specifics, right? Learn from that, parents. Okay, so, so he asks, well, what do you want me f- to do for you? And then they respond there in verse 37. Maybe, I, I think they probably realize that what they're asking is not really that good for them. It's not right for them to be asking. So they just want to kind of get this, this, this blanket approval. And then they say, okay, you said you'll do it. Must be okay for us to ask. But Jesus requires them to, to actually verbalize what they want. And so there in verse 37, they say, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So they want power. They want authority. They want, they want glory. They want to be at the right and left hand of Jesus. Now, notice two things. First, this is, this is arrogance. right? This request is arrogance. It's, it's proud. You, I mean, you can't, can't get around it. These two brothers. Now, remember, in, in, in all the Gospels... Peter, James and John, these three are kind of the inner circle. They're the ones who go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the ones who is always right there with Jesus. And so these two brothers are already kind of inside, and they take this opportunity, opportunity to make sure that when all said and done, that they will be number two and three, trailing only Jesus himself in terms of honor and power. We, we see James and John are showing their true colors, and, and it's not pretty these are proud men so these are two of his closest disciples and they have so misunderstood the purpose and mission of jesus that they're pining for thrones right they they want thrones they want glory and they're asking for it now they're not even to jerusalem yet and that's what they're concerned about how far they've fallen they don't get it They're proud. This is is an arrogant request. But notice, second thing to notice is that James and John, they're correct about who Jesus is and what awaits him. They're not incorrect to assume that a time is coming where he will sit in glory. Do you see that? Right? They they say, give us this seat when you're in glory. They're they're right about Jesus sitting in glory. They're right about that. This is the Messiah who who will be vindicated, who will be seated in glory. That's coming. And it is going to be a place of great honor so they are right in that they at least get that much but they don't understand the logic they don't understand the equation that the logic of the kingdom that that glory always proceeds suffering that suffering comes first that that to go up to be great you must go down and be low that's the logic that they're not they're not getting And so Jesus responds to their question, verse 38. He says to them, You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking me, James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, now pause there. What's the intended answer to that question? What's What's the intended answer? No, you can't. Right? He he's asking this Are you able to do this? You don't know what you're asking. First, maybe we should ask, well, what is the cup and the baptism that he's talking about? Right? What, what is Jesus talking about? Now, remember the context there. They're going to Jerusalem, and, and when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to die. He's, he's going to be crucified. Okay, this is the third time he's predicted this. And, and so here, Jesus is using two images, two analogies to represent his suffering. Okay, so, so the baptism and the cup, they're about his suffering. Okay, so the cup, the, the symbol of, of God's wrath, he, he's drinking this cup. This cup of God's wrath or, or baptism, this, this, this baptism of this flood, this, this thing about being overwhelmed with the flood of God's judgment. Both of these images, which, which have roots in the Old Testament, they're, they're pointing to the suffering of Jesus. They're, they're directly ra- related to his suffering. And so Jesus is, is pointing, you can't do this. You can't do this. This, this suffering is going to be unlike anything that you'll ever experience. And that's true. Jesus suffered and died in a way that no one else ever can. Right? This was a substitutionary sacrifice. No one can drink the cup and experience the, the baptism that Jesus did. Right? Jesus bore the wrath of God until it was placated, until it was satisfied, and no more. That cannot be done by any human person. Right? This, is, this is unique to the person and the work of Christ. He was an effective sacrifice. And so he's pointing to his uniqueness. He's also pointing to, to his suffering, the pattern. You want glory now, disciples? You've got, you got to drink the cup and you got to be baptized. you got to go through suffering before you get to the glory. It doesn't come until after the suffering. I mean, this is a pattern that I think Jesus is laying out for the Christian life. If the pattern of discipleship is that suffering before the crown. Right? And the crown doesn't come in this life. And so this entire life, I say, I could be characterized as suffering. But after the life comes the crown. And so they, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. And that's made clear in verse 39, when this question, are able to do this, Jesus says, intending there to be a negative response? Yeah, of course we're able. We can do it. We can, give us the cup. Let, let's go to the water. Let, let's do it. We're able. I, I thought about, you know, someone applying for a job that, that really wants the job. And they'll say, whatever you want, Yeah, I can do it. Yeah. And then it turns out you have no idea how to do it. You're just saying it because you want this. It's like that. that's what's going on with James and John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cup, baptism, yeah, we can do it. We'll do whatever it takes as long as we get those seats. Give us those thrones. That's what we want. Which shows that they're, they're missing it. They don't get it. And so then Jesus says, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. Whether these two realize it or not, these Two, James and John and many of the other disciples will experience suffering, suffering similar to what Jesus does. So they will suffer. Maybe you can write down Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. Acts 12 records that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church and that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so James, he, he knew better than he really realized or he, re, he knew more than he actually knew. He would be baptized with suffering, with judgment. They would suffer and they would follow this pattern. Nevertheless, even with this confusion, let's move on to verse 40. Jesus ends this conversation, verse 40, when he says, But to sit at my right hand or my left, it's not mine to grant, but it's for those who, for whom it's been prepared. Jesus makes plain, I can't do that for you. To, the, to grant your request, it's not something that I, that I can do. The appointment of the places of honor, that, that's the Father's prerogative. And, and and he's gonna put there whoever he wants to put there. I, I can't do that for you. It's not it's not as though Jesus is it's not a statement of his inability. He's not saying, Oh, that is way too hard for me. I'm mere man. No, it's that's not my job. Right? He 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 as the second person of the Trinity, he some things are reserved for the Father. It's the Father's prerogative. So Jesus says, I can't do that. Which leads to our last section. There, verse 41 and through 45. So notice verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant about James and John, or indignant at James and John. So remember, these two, are already, they're already part of the inner circle. So there's probably the other, the other seven probably don't like these three at some point, right? And if they're inside, we're outside. So, so they, don't, they already probably don't like them, or at least have a little bit against them. And now when they hear that James and John are trying to secure the seats of prominence next to Jesus in his glory, the other ten are indignant Right? They're indignant. How dare they? Now, I, I think we should ask what caused their indignation, their, their anger, their frustration. Why are they mad? Why are they mad? Right? Is it not that they wanted the place of power that James and John asked for? Right? That, that's the only solution. Right? It's that they wanted it. I mean, it, that must be the reason for their indignation or else they wouldn't care. Right? Oh, they asked for it. Oh, big deal. Who cares? I'm just here to serve. That's not their attitude. They asked for that? Well, well, We were supposed to do that. They're going to get what we we want. How dare they ask him? That's for us. Or at least a lottery or something. They're trying to take it from us. So, So this indignation reveals the pride and arrogance of James and John are not limited to James and John. It's all the disciples. James and John just gave verbiage to that pride, that arrogance And that's why in verse 42, Jesus, who does he call together? All them. He calls all 12. Okay, team meeting. This isn't something to address with James and John. This is everyone. Everyone come together. And then he teaches them. They all needed to hear this. And that's where he begins. Verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so in these verses, Jesus, he lays out what true authority, what what true leadership looks like. I mean, these 12, this is an important message, an important lesson for them to learn. And that's the lesson of what authority looks like in God's kingdom. And so to to teach them what authority in God's kingdom looks like, he contrasts it with authority in the world. Do you see how he does that? Verse 42, he's laying out this, 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 this other system of authority. Verse 32, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Not only that, they're great ones, they exercise authority over them. So here's this first picture, this authority in the world. The world's rulers, Jesus says, they rule by power and coercion. They lord over and they exercise dominion. That, that, that's the, the meaning there. These phrases, they emphasize a negative sense of power and oppression. It's a wrong use of authority that Jesus is laying out. This, the Gentiles, that's how they rule, negatively, by coercion and dominion. These disciples would have known it. Right? Remember, they're living in Jerusalem. They're living under Roman rule, so, so they know what worldly rulers look like. They were were exploited by the the Roman rulers, those who had been put in place. And and so I think it's fair to say these disciples, they despised this worldly system, these these unfair, unjust Romans. And yet, they're operating under the same assumptions of the world. They they want power like those that they despise. Do you see that? They want to rule like the Romans. And Jesus is saying... Verse 43, this will not be so among you. This is a worldly rule. It's not the case here. That's not how we operate. It's at odds with God's design. All worldly authority is exercised with with heavy hands for for selfish reasons so that those under authority are nothing more than servants to the authority. That's how it operates Those in authority and the servants, and the servants serve those in authority. And Jesus says, that's not how it's going to be among you. Verse 43, it shall not be so. Instead, whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. So Jesus, as I mentioned, he flips the authority structure on his head. Followers of Christ, members of the kingdom, they think differently about authority. In fact, they think rightly about authority service marks greatness. You want to be great? Serve somebody. Go low, Jesus says. Consider others. So Jesus, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, in, in this kingdom, guys, this kingdom that, that I'm, I'm establishing, authority is given for the good of those under it, not for the good of those in it. Do you see the difference? Authority in God's kingdom is given for the good of those under it. It's for the benefit of those. To, those in authority serve the subordinates. Whereas the world says the, the subordinates only exist to serve the, the one in authority. And Jesus says that's, that's the opposite of how it's supposed to be. Leadership, authority in, in God's kingdom is, is exercised by an other's focused service. I mean, I think, I think we need to note that Jesus isn't condemning authority. And he's not saying don't rule, don't have any systems of authority. He's not saying that. He's challenging the ungodly use of authority, the, the backwards perspective the disciples had given into. I mean, right? We, we have to admit that God set up, a, set up a world where there are those in authority and there are those under authority. That's, that's the structures of the world that we live in. We ought to live within those structures. The issue isn't authority, it's ungodly authority as it's exercised. And so let's ask a few closing questions to make our application. I have three closing questions. So I'm just going to work through these. First question of application from this passage. How are you using your authority? How are you using your authority? Another, another way to put it, how do you think about your authority? How, how, how do you, as someone in authority, how do you, how do you relate to those under your authority? How do you think about those that that you've been given authority over? How do you think about them? Now, as as someone in church leadership, I recognize the the ungodly use of spiritual leadership that's so common. That is an ungodly, damnable thing when church leaders use their authority to abuse those under. I need to hear this. How do I use my authority? How do I I think about it? God forbid if this is ever a place where where church leaders, where pastors use their authority as to to abuse or to use those under the authority. That is not godly. If you ever see that in me, tell me to my face. Rebuke me, please. That's not godly, But, but it's not just in church leadership. I mean, there's others. I mean, you, you may think, oh, well, well, that's him. That's for him. Glad he, glad he got that. Right? Authority is in all areas of life. There, there's employers. There's managers. There's teachers. There's servicemen and women. There's parents. Right? There, there, there are many other places where you have authority over others. And I'd simply ask, how do you use your authority? Maybe a maybe good, good practice this week. How, how do those under you? Think that you use your authority, right? Ask your kids. How, how do you view me as an authority? If they can, if they can think rightly, it right, might not be too fruitful. If you ask a toddler, maybe it will. Maybe it will be. But but how do those underneath you? How, how would they say that you use your authority? Do they think that they exist simply to serve you, right? To do whatever you say, and if that's if that's the sole. The sole way that they view you, that's wrong. The opposite is true. You have authority to use for their service, for their benefit. Godly authority is always others focused. God, make us servant leaders. That's what we should want to be as Christians, wherever we find ourselves. Second question, are you a servant of all? Are you a servant of all? This passage, it, it issues a call for those in authority, but it also makes, also issues a call to, to, a, to a broader audience, to every Christian. Right? Because you can't read this and say, okay, only those in official leadership positions should be servants. Well, most of you are in leadership positions, but every Christian ought to be a servant. Right? We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus whose life set an example. We ought to be servants of all. Humble servitude characterizes the disciple of Christ. Right? The Christian life is others' focus, so I would simply ask, are you a servant of all. I mean, yeah, when we serve others, it should be done in practice, yes, but I don't want you to think primarily in okay, what do I need to do to serve? I need to do that. I would say service is, is more than just practice, it's an attitude, it's a mindset. You consider yourself a servant of all. We ought to view our lives, we have to view others in our lives. Everyone is is an opportunity for me to serve, as, a, as an opportunity for me to give myself for the good of that person. Right? Every day you should wake up, okay, how can I, who can I serve? How can I serve today? How can I lay down my life for the good of someone else? Like Christ, we ought to be servants of all. Now, I, I thought specifically about in our, in our supercharged culture where, where others are often seen as opponents, right? right? We're divided. So many fronts we're divided. And so we are, we're programmed to think of others as opponents. And so the primary identity that they take is against bad, right? That's not how it ought to be. That's not how it ought to be. Christians see others primarily as recipients of service. We ought to serve others. There's a great, great quote, Martin Luther King Jr. He said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Anyone can serve and everyone ought to serve. If you're a follower of Christ, you ought to be a servant of all. Then lastly, last question. Has your ransom been paid? Has your ransom been paid? Look there at verse 45. I skipped it on purpose. I skipped over it. Some say this, this is the summary verse of Mark's entire gospel. Look at it there at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, now Jesus makes this statement certainly in order to emphasize the main point that we've been talking about, the, 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 the use of authority for serving others. But this statement also makes an extremely important point, namely that Jesus gave his life as a ransom as a, as a ransom, the, the point of that metaphor, the, the, the point of using that word is that Jesus purchased. He bought something. He bought people. His death was payment that secured deliverance. You, you know a ransom? Someone takes someone hostage, says, you got to pay before I'm going to let them go. Right? That, that's the imagery here. People were held captive, and Jesus gave his life. He died to buy back people to pay the ransom of many. His death freed the prisoner and unlocked their chains. Jesus gave his life. The, the whole reason he came, the whole reason that he's going to Jerusalem, is to give his life as a ransom for many. He died as a substitute. There's this powerful scene in a movie called To End All Wars. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a good movie, but, but this, this movie is about these four prisoners of war. Okay, they're, they're part of the Allied forces, and, and they're being held in this Japanese prisoner of war camp in, in World War II. And, and at one point in the movie, I mean, th- these men are treated terribly by these Japanese soldiers. But at one point in this movie, this, this general, this Japanese leader, he calls everyone in the camp, all these men out, they all line up, and he says, a shovel's been missing. So there's a shovel that's gone. And so these men, part of their, their job, just for background, they had shovels because they were digging a railroad through a Burmese jungle, right, by hand. That, that's what they were doing. So hard labor every day had these shovels. Well, it turns out, one of the shovels was gone. And so he, he parades everyone out, and he makes this announcement. And he says, if the person who's responsible for the missing shovel doesn't, doesn't fess up, everyone's going to suffer. That's what he says. And, and if you've seen this movie and how this man treated them, right, this is not a good thing. You don't want that happening. So, so, so there's this, this silence, and these men are looking around. And then one of the main characters, who's played by Kiefer Sutherland, okay, before he was Jack Bauer right, and Kiefer Sutherland, he steps out, and he, and he, he walks kind of halfway up, so that, so that the leaders can can notice, they recognize them, and everyone, all the soldiers kind of look around, thinking, he didn't take it, but he steps up, the leader then grabs a shovel, he proceeds to beat this character, just beat him with the shovel, and it's a moving scene, it's a powerful scene, he, he's, he's almost to his death, the way that the the camera is showing. That's, that's what I assume. He's about to die. Just hit and hit. And then all of a sudden, a soldier runs from a tent yelling something. And then through the translator, there's been a miscount. The shovel's there. Right? And so then the shock comes over this general, this Japanese general's face. He actually, he turns to beat the Japanese soldier who counted and miscounted. And right? he's so embarrassed. But, but do you see? He recognizes what was happening. And I it said, it's a moving scene, but, but this general realizes that he nearly killed an innocent man, right? This man stepped forward and he gave up himself for the good of others. He said, I'll take the fall. I don't want them all to suffer. I'll take the fall. His life was spared, right? The, 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 it, the, the count was corrected in time, but he was willing to die in order that others might not suffer. And that's exactly what Jesus has done, except the shovel wasn't found in Jesus' case, right? The beating wasn't stopped. Jesus suffered until he breathed his last. His life was given until gone. He drank the cup, he bore the wrath, and he did so in order that many may be forgiven and go free. And so my question to you this morning is simply, has your ransom been paid? Has has your debt to thy holy God been paid? Are you among those for whom... Their sins have been forgiven by the death of Christ. Are you ransomed? Because you either are or you aren't. Your sins have either been paid for or they haven't. And if you're here and you've been ransomed, and if that's you this morning, rejoice in the one who gave his life to ransom you. Right? Rejoice. You have, there's good news for you today. Love this one who gave his life as a ransom for you. Worship this one. Serve others for the good of this one who gave his life as a ransom for you. You've been ransomed rejoice if that's you if you're here and you haven't been ransomed if you don't know whether your sins have been forgiven if you don't know whether jesus has paid for your sins let me give you good news to be included in that many you simply repent and put your faith in christ faith and repentance is all that's required to be included among the many for whom jesus died To be among those for whom Christ died, you simply must turn to Christ, look to Him, put your faith in Him. Apart from that, you will pay your ransom, eternally tormented by a holy and just God. Hear me, I'm pleading with you. Put your faith in Christ or you will pay for your sins. Believing that He died for you and that you needed Him to die for you is enough. Come to an end of yourself and put your faith in Christ. That's my call to you this morning. Friend, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And that many can include you. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful. Father, I'm thankful that, that Jesus did not consider equality with, with God, something to be grasped, but, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and, and emptied himself. And became a servant and, and an obedient servant, and, and he was obedient to the point of even death on a cross. And so now we worship Christ as, as who's been the one who's been given a name above every name, who's been given a seat of authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And so we worship him who laid down his life for us. And so, Father, I pray this morning. would you encourage us, your people, our ransom has been paid. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.